This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. Okay, you all, I have a bit of a preaching dilemma this morning. I'm compelled to teach what's in God's Word, but the section of God's Word that we're going to be studying, and that's going to be Psalm 23, is a challenge to teach because you're going to be tempted to think that what we learn about God in Psalm 23 is simply too good to be true. You're going to be tempted to think that this vision, this picture of what God is like and who God is and how God wants to have relationship with us, it's so rich, it's so powerful, it's so majestic, and yet it's so personal that it's going to be very tempting to think just, just can't be true. Because the reality is that in our sin nature, we're constantly getting confused about what God is really like. And as we engage in relationships and we engage in larger rhythms in society and culture, we get confused about what God is really like. In Psalm 23, which is sometimes called a psalm of confidence, is a psalm that tells us you can be confident that God is just like what the writer of this poem has told us he is like. You can be confident that the fullness of who God is is that God is one who loves you and he loves you by leading you. God is one who loves you and he loves you by leading you. He's a shepherd who leads you. He's a servant who leads you. That's the promise given here. So turn with me to Psalm 23. It's there in your bulletin. We, we just spoke it together. This is, this is given to us by the church as a strengthening. We're in the fourth Sunday of the season of Lent. If you're not familiar with Lent, it's a time where we prepare our hearts. We're preparing our minds to celebrate the fullness of Jesus Christ, crucified, dead, and risen from the grave. So we're preparing for that. And what we prepare is we study the Bible and we actually humbly choose to align what we believe about our own lives and what we believe about God with the Bible. Now that's radical. It goes back radical. It goes back to the root of what's really true. So Lord, help align ourselves now with who you really are. This is a genius poem. Okay, so Psalm 23 is a poem. Six verses. It's brief. But it's very powerful. Seemingly simple, but it captures the deeply personal and comprehensive love of God. God's love for you is experienced by God's leadership of you. Amen? God's love for you is experienced. You're going to concretely realize that and know that and apprehend that by God's leadership of you. So right now you can just take a big sigh of relief. I don't have to lead my life. You don't have to lead your life. I'll go even a step farther. Don't lead your life. The stakes are very, very high. Life is very, very hard. It's filled with sorrows. It's filled with crisis. It's filled with delights. It's filled with joys. But even to get to those delights and those joys, you'll have to make a decision. If God is a leader, and a leader who's a shepherd, then I need to decide today, am I going to lead my life or is he? Is that relief to you that God can lead your life or are you, hmm, be real, 
Let's look at the poem. He leads your days, verses one to three. He leads your days. He leads your darkness seasons, your, your, your death-like seasons, verse four. He leads your days, but he leads your darkness seasons as well. When, when, when things crowd in, in verses five and six, he serves you as he leads you. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. This is a testimony. David wrote this. David would become one of the great kings of Israel. He writes this as a king, but he had literally himself worked and lived as a shepherd. The biblical record makes that clear. So when he writes this, he's actually writing, as writers so often do, out of his own personal experience. He's saying, I know what it is to be a shepherd. I spent a long time, a lot of long days and long nights as a shepherd. I know what it is to be close to a flock, to the sheep. I know what that's like. And he's, he's come to realize in the revelation of God and who God is and the gift of the law that's given to him that the Lord is, he's like a shepherd. And indeed, what shepherd is one of the key ways in which the, the, the scriptures talk to us about who the Lord is. It's all throughout the Hebrew scriptures. And then Jesus will use it himself. He'll say, I am the good shepherd. The writer of Hebrews will say, he is the great shepherd. He's called the chief shepherd of our souls. Shepherd's one of the key ways that we're told to understand what God is like. The Lord is shepherd. But not just shepherd, right? He's what kind of shepherd? He's my shepherd. That possessive pronoun is very important there. David's using it very specifically. He wants to say, God is objectively real. He is real outside of our own particular apprehension of him. He exists whether we feel him or not or know him or not. God exists. God is a shepherd, but he is my shepherd, which is to say that the king and master and creator of the universe has given himself to you personally, incarnationally in the fullness of the revelation that we learn about in Jesus, that we, that we see in Jesus. Dr. Timothy Laniac, Old Testament professor, Hebrew scholar, had an interest in shepherds, and he knew how important shepherd and God was in the Hebrew scripture. So he wanted to actually go and experience the life of a shepherd in the Middle East. So he spent significant amount of time, months, traveling with Bedouin shepherds throughout the Middle East. He got to know one shepherd, and this shepherd said to him, when it comes to the sheep, if I'm not with my sheep every day, I'm not a shepherd. So everybody in their vocation kind of has like some fundamental principles. Like if I don't do X, Y, Z, I'm not X, Y, Z. When it comes to a shepherd, if I'm not with a shepherd every day, then I'm not really a shepherd. What would they probably be? Like a hired hand? Like I'm just doing it for the wool benefits? I, I don't know, you know. But not true shepherds. See, they're with the sheep every day. Jesus will say, my sheep, this is beautiful. He says this, my sheep know my voice. And I know my sheep. So when God wants to lead you, he wants to lead your minutes. And he wants to lead your days. Beautiful quote from late 20th century poet 
poetess and writer Annie Dillard. She says this, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. So have you ever had a little flight of fancy where you've imagined people giving your eulogy at your funeral? Have you ever done that? A lot of you have. Come on. You've done it. Not everyone, but many of you. Okay. It happens. We do it. What, what are we doing when we're doing that? Well, part of what we're working out is what will be said about my life? Like, what, what, will, my, what will be my life story? How, how will people tell my story? One of the ways you can have agency or how folks tell your story is how do you live your days? And one of the ways that you can live your days is understanding that you don't get to lead your days, Jesus does. You don't get to lead your minutes, Jesus does. He would like to lead you through those. And the way that you are led through your minutes and your days will have everything to do with how you spend your life. It's a great life strategy. Don't think about the whole life. Just think about the day with Jesus, your good shepherd. Dr. Leniak met two other shepherds. One was 80 and one was a shepherdess, and she was 100. And both of them had pressure from their families to give up their shepherding work because it's rigorous. They both replied, essentially, I can't live without my sheep. They are family. Do you realize that Jesus says to us, I, I don't want to live without you. Now, for me to live with you because of the reality of your sin and rebellion, I will need to give up my life to live with you, which is precisely what I will do. I will give up my life so that I can live my life with you every minute, every day. That's the love of God. That's the power of the cross. The cross means that the Lord is our shepherd and we shall not want. When we understand that God is with us in this way and that God is shepherding our minutes and our hours and our days, and he's that close and he's that personal, you can see why when we employ the phrase, and it's, it's meant with goodwill, I realize, but when we say that God showed up, I don't think we're fully in alignment with the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. God showed up. God showed up on the first day of creation. God showed up on the cross of Jesus Christ. God is here. God has shown up. The question is not did God show up. The question is did you show up? Amen? Did you show up repentant? Did you show up open? Did you show up humble? Did you show up poor in spirit? If you've had an encounter with God, you're tempted to say, God showed up last night. God showed up in that lunch meeting. God showed up in that church service. No, 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 no. You showed up ready to be led by Jesus, who is leading your days if you'll yield to him. Praise the Lord. That's what God is like. That's helping align our thinking with the biblical revelation of who God is and what he is like. Okay, so if he's leading our days and he's leading our minutes and he's come to know us that closely, now that means he knows everything about you. And that can be intimidating. I realize that can be overwhelming because there are things about us that we're all ashamed of. But it also means, and he's ready to forgive those things which we may have shame about. The point I want to make is this, though. It's not only may he know everything about you, and that may be overwhelming, but let it also be comforting. Because when he knows everything about you and he knows your days, it means he knows your losses like no one else knows your losses, which is why 
David writes, as he comes to know us day in and day out, he restores my soul, verse 3. Look at that with me, y'all, verse 3. It's a really important verb in this revelation of who God is. He restores my soul. We had prayer meeting here last night. Anyone's invited to prayer meeting on Saturday night, 8 to 9.30, and in that prayer meeting, the word restoration came up as, as a sense from God. God wants to do a work of restoration in our lives, and of course, I'm thinking Psalm 23, he restores our souls. Now, restoration has as its premise, or the presupposition of restoration is that something has been lost. You've lost something that needs to be restored. Something was in the storehouse of your soul. You carry something about who you were, and you lost that thing about who you were. You, you either gave it away or it was taken from you. And so he restores our souls because our souls are losing things all the time. We're losing connection with God. We're losing connection with each other. We're giving away things sexually. We're giving away things intellectually. We're giving away all kinds of things. And we have, we have all those, or people are taking those things from us. The reality of loss permeates the reality of the human experience. So we understand that one of the way God works when he separates our daily lives is he restores us. He replenishes your storehouse. To restore here is to return to vitality. Oh, to return to vitality. And a psychologist friend to kind of describe for me, hey, the thriving life looks like this regarding three different areas of life. The thriving life looks like there's a strong sense of worth, sort of fundamental personhood. I know who I am. And there are many who suffer for multiple reasons without even having a sense of worth. I'm not sure who I am. There are folks who don't even, they're not even sure that they fully exist. I, I, I'm not making a joke at all. They, 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 they don't know that they are. They don't feel a sense of being. So worth. To have worth is, is one of the key steps toward thriving. Second is significance, which is to say, I have something to give. And God's designed every single human being with something to give. It doesn't mean accomplishment. It means you have a gift to give in your life. And you know what that gift is. And so to operate in the significance is I have something to give. And then belonging. I know where I fit. I know where I feel connected. Friendship is one of the great gifts of belonging. I mean, we always tell our kids, I mean, isn't it amazing when you make a friend and you realize they want to be with me as much as I want to be with them? Isn't that awesome? I love that about friends. You don't have to worry, right? They didn't reply to your text because they were actually busy. Not that they don't want to be with you. That's a huge relief, isn't it? Yeah. That's part of belonging. So one way to maybe assess where is there a sense of loss, if you're trying to, trying to get clear on that, is has there been a loss of worth, just fundamentally who you are? Were you maybe not given even in the central building blocks of your early years as a kid? And you weren't given what you needed for worth. The Lord restores that. That's what he's like. You don't know what you have to offer. Or restores that. The power of his Holy Spirit. You don't know where you belong. 
Lord restores that. So in Lent, we, we have still water time, right? He, he restores my soul. He leads me inside still water. So got a couple more weeks of Lent, two more weeks before we start Palm Sunday. Just get some still water time. Let, let him lead you beside a still water. Assess wherever this loss might be. But don't stay there. Keep going with this passage, this scripture, because it continues to lead us. Because we see that these, these green pastures, we're not going to shift. Look at, look at verse 4. Okay, so we get the word even in verse 4. So we've had green pastures. We had still waters. We have the Lord as a shepherd. He's restoring us. But now we shift in the poem, and we go through, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Not all of you may be used to the Bible. Many of you probably are. So that's a phrase that you've known. But somebody actually wrote that phrase. It wasn't, people weren't using that phrase up until David wrote it. All right, this, this, this is an amazing phrase. I walked through the valley of the shadow of death. And we've shifted now from green grass to valleys. Valleys are where the grass can't grow, right? So green grass is where there's plenty of sun. There's plenty of photosynthesis. Oh, that grass will be green again. I, it will happen, family of God. We're going to get to April. It's going to happen. It just doesn't feel like it the last four or five days, right? We've been in a valley of the shadow of frigidity, <laughs> right? So valleys where the grass doesn't grow, but in the green grass, there's lots of sun. There's lots of openness. The sun is beating down. It's warm, and things are happening. There's life happening. But in the valley, it can't get there. So there's a darkness. There's a shadow. And in the darkness, not only are things not alive around you when you're in a valley in your life, when you're in a death-like experience or a darkness reality experience, you can't even see where you're going. So if you could see, it wouldn't be a consolation because there's nothing around you that's alive. But you can't even see because it's so dark. And the Bible's saying that's a reality in the human experience as well. This gives you great confidence in the Bible. It's telling you the truth, the whole truth. There's green grass and there's valleys. Life is both. Life has both. And Jesus is in both. He leads you through both. He's your shepherd in both. There's a gritty realism here. I love this quote. So this, is, this comes from a section of the Paths of the Dead in the book of Lord of the Rings. And in this book, Strider, Aragorn, has to go through the paths of the dead. It's like a valley of the shadow of death. And he's accompanied by a couple of friends, which is to say, don't don't go through valleys alone with Jesus and with those that will accompany you. One of his partners is Gimli, who's a dwarf, a stalwart, resilient, courageous dwarf. But when he walks into the paths of the dead, Gimli breaks down because it's terrifying. Here's what Tolkien says about Gimli's experience, which fits our experience in the valley of the shadow of death. It says, quote, Gimli was pursued by a groping horror that seemed always just about to seize him. That's what the valley is like, is when will the next shoe drop on me? When will I be seized by something, right? When you're in darkness and you're walking, when might it get darker? That's part of the panic that happens if you've lived in a valley. Tolkien continues, he stumbled on until he was crawling like a beast on the ground, and he felt that he could endure no more. He must either find an ending and escape or run back in madness. 
to meet the fear that followed him. What a profound description of the valley of the shadow of death. We either want to just escape. The psalm says another place, oh, that'd be like a bird that could fly away, right, from the wilderness, from the valley, from the darkness. Or it's like he's going to go mad. He's, going to, he's just going to lose it. So what happens in the valley? Look at that. Look at that last phrase in verse 4. Look at that in your bulletin or in your Bible. He comforts us. There's so many things I want you to, to know about Jesus today from this text. But one thing I want you to know, particularly if you happen to be in a valley this morning, I want you to know that there's a promise that he comforts us. Because when you're like Gimli and you're afraid of the horror that's going to still seize you, and you're thinking either I escape or I just lose it, you need comfort. And that's exactly what David understood. He'd been through his valleys of the shadow of death. We'll say a little bit more about that in a moment. And he realized his testimony was, God comforts you with his rod and his staff. The rod, generally for a shepherd, as, as best as scholars can tell, had to do with guarding. It's a protective implement. The staff had to do with guiding. So the rod and the staff, our comfort comes from the fact that Jesus, our good shepherd, guards and he guides. He does both in the valley where the sun does not reach. Now, the evil is there. The darkness is there. But be very clear about this. The evil does not get to lead. The shepherd leads. Jesus leads. His rod and his staff lead. Jesus, in his resurrection from the dead, has utterly and completely secured the fact that evil does not lead. It has secured the fact that evil does not have the final word. It has secured the fact that even death itself, through Jesus' resurrection, has become a passage to God for those who will follow Jesus and not an ultimate peril. That's the power of the resurrection. That's the power of the rod and the staff. Do you understand that there's the ways of the valley, but you'll be tempted to practice the peril. If you're in a valley or a valley is coming, you'll be tempted to practice the peril. You'll be tempted to speak and talk about and describe all the perils that are around you all the time. You will become an expert of the valley's topography and all the miseries that are part of a valley because it's so present to us and we're sensate beings and we feel it and we know it. And when you're in pain, physical pain, mental pain, it's like you can't do anything else but just feel it. But the follower of Jesus learns that evil does not lead, peril does not lead, Jesus himself leads, and I will practice the presence of the good shepherd himself. I will believe in the presence of the shepherd who is bringing me through this. I will not practice peril. We all have testimonies for this. If you don't have a testimony yet, you're going to get one. He'll give you one when that valley comes. I can promise you that from the Bible. One of my testimonies of being in a valley of shadow of death was an opportunity I had five years ago. Some of you may remember this, where I was preaching in Nigeria with our uh, sister diocese in Joss, Nigeria. I was preaching revival meetings. It was very, very hot. One of those days, I'm wearing all this gear. 
And I was hit really hard, I realized a few hours after I finished preaching, with heat stroke. The heat stroke got worse and worse, and then it led to kidney stones. I also had, I found out later, malaria. So all these things came down at one time, and I was very, very, very sick. After five utterly miserable days in a hotel room, we realized we've got to get me out. I have to get back to the States. I'll never know how I exactly got on a commercial flight, but I got on a commercial flight, two flights. I'm two hours from Chicago. I'm almost home. And now I understand from a doctor's evaluation, I began to go into septic shock. I, I had an out-of-body experience. I was, was, was losing kind of coherence. I could see myself as if I was floating above myself. And I just heard this voice. I don't know how else to describe it. It said, go find someone. So I stumbled down the aisle of that airplane, and a flight attendant found me. And she said, are you okay? I said, I, 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 I think I'm losing it. And she, she grabbed me. She got my face. And she said, look, I'm not only a flight attendant, I'm an RN, and you are not going to die on my watch. I mean, it helped. <laughs> it was like a rod and a staff, right? She called a doctor, they got me oxygen, they called an ambulance, I landed in Chicago, swept off some of Chicago's finest to an in an ambulance. That's just a testimony of rod and staff. So we see finally, as the poem concludes, that he, he serves us by leading our days. He serves us by leading us through the dark times. He leads us by leading us through the dark times. But then he serves us with his leadership. And we see this picture of service. We've gone from a shepherd. Now he's a host. You prepare a table before me. Now he's hosting. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I remember having a professor in college. And this professor, um, I'll never forget this. He, he was in his late 60s. He said, you know what? I love the Bible, but the Psalms are really hard for me to understand because I don't have any enemies. And the Psalms are full of enemies, getting protection from many. He said, this is just, I just don't get that part of the Bible. I remember thinking at 21, oh, I, I hope I'm like that when I'm in my late 60s. <laughs> so what happens here? Who were David's enemies? What, remember, he's writing from his own experience, right? He's writing about who God is, but he's writing from his own experience. So what is David saying here? Well, David's enemies were not, you know, sort of typecast, you know, villains, you know, springing around him. David's enemy was his father-in-law. David's enemy was his own family. David's enemy was Saul, who he had served when Saul was king, and Saul is still king. And now Saul is taking all the power of the kingdom of Israel, and he's marshalling it against David, in whom he's very threatened. So when David says, my enemies, and he says, God sets a table, prepared table before me in the presence of my enemies. Brothers and sisters, sometimes your enemies are sitting at your table. Often, that's, that's actually where the enemies are. They're not out there somewhere, some abstract reality. They're actually a family member. They're actually a co-worker. They're actually somebody that you've been close to at some point. This is about interpersonal division primarily in terms of the context that David is getting. And although that reality might be the enemies, I think my professor ultimately was right biblically. 
Because ultimately, a human being is not our enemy. They may have a season of being enemy-like, but the fact of the matter is there is an enemy. It's not another human being. It's the enemy of our souls who comes to steal, he comes to kill, and he comes to destroy, and his name is Satan. And he's a devil, and Jesus teaches about him in John chapter 10. He says, he will steal, kill, and destroy, but I will restore your soul. And there's a stark difference. And the reality is, Jesus sets a table for us in front of the enemy. And he confounds the enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy by restoring your soul, by feeding your soul, by setting a table for your soul. So what we do when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what we do when we're being shepherded is you've got to find the feast. You've got to find the feast. You've got to find the table that Jesus has set for you because there is always communion there. There may be disunity around you, but there can always be a unity in your life with Jesus himself. And from that unity, you build unity with others. Do you realize that no one can take your unity with Jesus from you? That's the gift he's given to you. That's your agency in Jesus. That's the gift you have. That's the table he has set for you. A table is a symbol of unity. A table is a symbol of communion, of common union. So you find the feast. You don't have to look far. It's right there. Praise the Lord. It's right there. It's right here. Here's your feast. The house of God. You see that last verse there? He's a servant in the house of God. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Don't go through the valley by yourself. Go through with your house, which is to say the church, which is to say your brothers and sisters and your mothers and fathers in Christ. That's not too good to be true. That's exactly true. And Jesus serves us by giving us the church. He serves us by giving us one another. He serves us by giving his very flesh and blood in holy communion. You find the feast amid your enemies. And you realize, they're not really my enemies. I've got one enemy, and Jesus has conquered him in the cross and resurrection. So Gimli talked about being pursued by a groping horror. But the Bible says that goodness and mercy, verse 6, that's what's pursuing us. That's what's following you. Christ be with me, Christ within me, Christ behind me, Christ before me, Christ beside me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ in quiet, Christ in danger, Christ in hearts of all that love me. He's a good shepherd. It's not too good to be true. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.